Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. More testing equals more growth and that's because with every test you run you start to learn what works and what doesn't work and if you change your mindset and you realize that everything that you've implemented prior to starting a testing program is a test you know it's it's just the it's the a version of an ab test Welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today I have a very special guest, uh, Sean Ellis. He's the author of Hacking Growth and the CEO and co-founder of Growth Hackers. And Sean is also the keynote speaker at the Shift in Oslo in November. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Lucas. Excited to be on. So uh, let's get started. So uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, and how you came into doing what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So, um, my, you know, I've been working in in internet marketing for a lot of years. So I was actually based in Europe at the beginning of my career. So right after college, I moved to Budapest, Hungary, and uh, a friend of mine was starting an internet company in 1995, and uh, I I got kind of excited about just the the prospects for it, and so I invested in that company. It was called Uproar, and. Uh, about six months later, um, when, when the product was ready, I joined initially in a sales role and it was, it was selling advertising, but it turned out that, uh, advertisers aren't very interested in reaching, uh, reaching people on a product when, when no one's using it. So I, uh, I took a uh, temporary role to, to try to grow the customer base on there. And it turned out that I, I really loved, you know, the marketing side. And so, um, we, that website we ended up building up to being a top 10 website overall in the world. And it was called uproar.com. And then, uh, it was the number one game site and we beat a lot of different companies. And so, uh, we sold that to Vivendi universal in 2001. And then same group of guys, uh, started again, another company out of Budapest, Hungary called log me in. And so, uh, log me in, I ran marketing there from, from the beginning through the IPO filing, that's that's about a $6 billion company now. And then one of the things that I learned across these two companies is the really important stage with with innovation, with a new product, is, uh, is up front and trying to figure out, does anybody actually like this product? And if so, why do they like it? And how do you, how do you build that, that early marketing engine? And um, I realized that was the most important part, but in 10 years, I'd only you know, probably spent a year uh, of, of doing that in these companies. And so I wanted to spend the next few years really getting cycles of, of practicing bringing new companies to market. And so that's where I, I signed on for these six month, first six month roles with a bunch of companies. And that's when I worked with uh, Dropbox as their first marketer and Eventbrite and uh, a company called Lookout. But each of those companies went on to went on to billion dollar plus valuations as well. And so 
um, it was a it was a really you know, fun period. But then I then I decided I wanted to kind of share that learning with other marketers, and so I've been in marketing tools and and just uh, just in general, just trying to help more more marketers and founders get get smarter about how they grow their businesses. So we we had a company called Qualaroo that we sold a couple of years ago, and then now I've been working on uh, Growth Hackers, and I put out my book Hacking Growth about a about a year ago, and so that's that's most of my focus now is just trying to help other companies grow. Cool. Uh, so the term growth hacking, uh, I think you're responsible for coining that term. Is that correct? That is correct. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, so, but what is growth hacking? Because there's a lot of uh, people saying different things and, and calling it uh, growth hacking. But what, what, what is your definition of growth hacking? Yeah. So even before there, I, I think I'll, I'll I'll just address like why I created it, and that that's part of part of the the definition of what it was. So when I was at these companies doing these six month roles, you know, eventually I had to hand off the, the 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 growth and marketing to to someone else to to take it over. And what I realized is that most of the people applying to to lead those those marketing and growth efforts had a very kind of traditional marketing approach and marketing background and I knew, you know, most of these companies were still in the early days, and so, um, you know, they're they're very vulnerable to, um, to 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 messing it up. And I had equity in the companies, and so I had a very specific approach in mind that um, most most people weren't taking. And so that's that's why I decided I wanted to uh, just. You know, I figured if I called it something else, I could define exactly what it was. And so that's why I I came up with okay, growth hacking is actually what we need. We don't just need marketing; we need growth hacking. And so the idea was that it was something that was very focused on, on just growth itself, on, on getting new customers who actually use the product and are engaged on the, on the product. And that the way to do that was through really fast experimentation, not just with acquisition channels, but actually with kind of all parts of that customer journey. So how do you get a new user to actually sign up and use the product in the right way? How do you retain customers? What's what's the right pricing model so that you can fund your growth engine? How do you drive referral to bring customers from your existing customers? How do you leverage your existing customers to bring new customers? And so that was that was really the idea of uh, of growth hacking was being able to run this rapid experimentation across all opportunities for accelerating growth so that you can drive actual growth in engagement and usage on a product. So do you think too many people or too many companies are focusing on the upper level of the funnel uh, and, you know, focusing on, on, on traffic? I, yeah. I mean, and, and I think what I found and, and a lot of, a lot of my approach has been, sort of trial and error. That's what I used to do. I, I used to funnel uh, focus on the top of the funnel, but I realized um, at, at Log Me In in particular that um, I, was, I was spending a lot of money trying to bring people in and, and acquire them, but most of the people who signed up, like, like 95% of the people who signed up for Log Me In when I initially started trying to grow the business never used the product, not even once. And so you know, you, you could say as a marketer, okay, I need to do a better job of qualifying and getting the right people in. But, um, you know, but, but at the same time, the, how you introduce the product is really important to growth as well. And so I actually shared the data with the CEO at LogMeIn and said, we're, we're having a really hard time driving profitable customer acquisition because most of them never use the product. 
And it, it seems like fixing that is somewhere between product and marketing, but the product team is so focused on the long-term product roadmap that, that no one's thinking about this first experience. And so I didn't expect him to react the way he did, but he actually put a complete pause on the product development roadmap and said, I want to take everyone from marketing, everyone from product, all engineers, and everyone's going to focus on trying to get the new signups to actually use the product. So we're going to study everything we can about that, run a bunch of experiments, get new people to sign up and use the product. And that actually increased our sign up to usage rate by, by about a thousand percent in just a few months. Yeah. And so what that meant then is when I went back and tried customer acquisition now, so the top of funnel where most people are focused and, and actually had fixed the problem that, that prevented people from using the product, I now could scale profitable customer acquisition from you know about $10,000 a month to over a million dollars a month with a three-month payback on marketing dollars invested. And so I think that's the big thing is that you've got, you've just got these interdependencies of all of these different levers. And if you've, if you've got breakage anywhere, everything else is really hard. And so that's, that's a big part of this is just figuring out what's holding back growth. How do we how do we really address that thing? And then ultimately, ultimately, top of funnel is really important, but top of funnel is is hard if you haven't if you have if you don't have the right pricing model, you don't have the right way to introduce customers, and you're not focused on retaining those customers. So the top of funnel is actually something one one does at the end of a process, not at the beginning of a process, right? Well, it's it's a it's a little bit of back and forth because obviously, if you have if you have nothing top of funnel, then then you don't have any signal to find out where where the rest of the journey is broken and so you have to you have to bring at least some people in to be able to uh, to, to be able to iterate and ab test on that new customer you know that new customer onboarding and and you know the rest of the journey but so i think that's the biggest thing though is that most people most people that just everyone's running as hard as they can but there's not a lot of coordination and so you know, the, the, the initial goal is bring in enough traffic to figure out where things are broken. Some of the early things you don't even need to fix with A-B testing. You can just do usability testing and just sort of see where people are getting confused. But once you do that, then then it's about kind of turning up that acquisition volume to where you can really run you know, mu- much more high velocity testing across that full customer journey. So it, it seems like it sounds like growth hacking should be like the heart of the company. Do you agree? I agree. I think it's it's really something that um, to be successful with it, you need senior management really pushing it. So so basically, the CEO on downward needs to be pushing it. And I think that's a big part of the reason why probably the best company in the world at this is Facebook. And the person who really leads the growth charge at Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg. And so he's he's he he pushed the growth team to to even exist there. He's got a key metric that everyone is in the company is working together to grow, which is daily active users. And then he's constantly connecting that back to the company mission. And so I think that's, you've got the vision on the mission side, but the execution then is everyone needs to know what their role is in growth. And then a growth team should really be trying to coordinate how, how the different parts of the business are working together to drive growth. So how do you actually build a growth team? Uh, again, it depends on the size of the company. So for, for an early stage company, it may actually just be a single person who's, who's really dynamic. And so, um, you know, it can, it can be someone who, 
Uh, yeah, I, I'll give you an example just from Dropbox. So when I got to Dropbox, there were seven people at the company and they were all engineers. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I could do some stuff, but I obviously couldn't do it all. So one of, one of the big goals that we had there was to create this, this culture of growth and experimentation. That was actually in my, in my contract when, when I joined, that was one of the big objectives that I had, had set up with, with Drew and uh, the, the CEO there. And so um, it, essentially what I wanted to do was make sure that as we started to run experiments, that we had enough successful experiments that people didn't lose faith in the process, right? So um, how, how do you figure out those right successful experiments? You, you, you ultimately um, you know, run a lot of the research, kind of like I was talking about at Log Me In. So uh, if, if I can map if I have 100 people who start at the top of the funnel, where do I lose people at each step? And then how many people ultimately become users who, who love the product and, and use it on a, on a frequent basis? And so usually, usually it's only going to be, you know, you get 100 people at the top, maybe you're only going to have five that come out at the bottom. And so understanding where you're losing those people, running research to to really try to understand why you're losing them. So some uh, surveying, usability testing, and then creating ideas for fixing it, experiments for fixing it. Um, you know, For a lot of the marketing experiments, it's pretty easy for a marketer by themselves to do it. But for the deeper experiments in, in the onboarding and, and core product, that's where you need the engineers, you need the core product team working with you. And so that was really getting that rolling was where I had to work with, with, uh, the CEO drew to push through those first experiments, but pretty quickly the engineers could see based on the success of that, that, wow, this actually works. It's, it's pretty simple math and engineers are usually pretty good at math. And so they, they then pretty quickly started uh, generating their own ideas for tests and implementing the, the ideas for tests. And today that's one of the things that, that Dropbox really prides itself on is, is having this, culture where everyone takes ownership of growth. And so you can see in that case, building the growth team was literally me kind of working with the CEO and then getting the rest of the team in this experimental mode. In other companies, it's um, what, what I think the, the best thing to really do as you're building the team is to hold yourself accountable for the number of tests that you run per week and say, target three tests per week that we're going to run, especially if you're a consumer business, you can do that. B2B, it might be a little harder. But um, so three tests per week and start figuring out what prevents you from running those tests. So if it's uh, if, if you lack an engineer or you lack a designer, then then you go and you hire that additional skill set so that you can hit your testing target. So I don't think you want to build a, a growth team up front and, and try to get all the pieces in place and then start testing. So my goal is usually when I'm, when I'm advising someone on building a growth team, start testing with the, with the team and resources that you have today, try to have at least one person who's, who's responsible for making sure that each week the testing is happening and then really assess what's holding back that testing and add people who, who can help accelerate that testing throughput. Yeah, you talked about the uh, number of tests per week, and uh, that's actually a pretty crucial metric, isn't it? It, it surprisingly is. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I have yet to see a company that turns up their testing velocity on a consistent basis. You know, you turn up for one week, oh, it didn't work, you might hit, you know, but at, at least turns it up where they at least run 10 or 15 tests who don't 
you know, who, who maybe 10 or 15 tests over a four week period and who don't start to see a lot of improvement when they do that. And, and so, you know, I think that the simplest formula for growth, um, it, it sounds almost too simplistic is more testing equals more growth. And that's because with every test you run, you start to learn what works and what doesn't work. And if you change your mindset and you realize that everything that you've implemented prior to starting a testing program is a test, you know, it's, it's just the, it's the A version of an AB test. And so no one ever gets, gets success the very first time they test something. That's, it's never the optimal implementation of something. And so the only way to figure out the better way to do everything is by, by testing it against something else. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's surprisingly how simple that idea is that more testing is, is ultimately the key to driving more growth. So are there any like particular tests that are uh, popular to, to do or, or is it, does it depend, depend on the company and the goal and stuff like that? Yeah, it really depends on the business. But what I can say is that um, it, it's more the focus area of where those tests are. And what I would say is the most important place for companies to focus is, is that what we learned from that example of log me in that I mentioned is getting new users to use your product right the first time so that that new customer activation is is probably where you get the biggest gains because if you can't if you can't activate a new customer you can't retain that customer if you can't activate a new customer you can't spend money to cost effectively acquire customers because they're all you pay the money and then they fall out before they get to the point where they start paying you money. So really trying to figure out what does it take someone who's interested to actually get value from the product? And then you know, e even before you can really do that, then you have to make sure that you actually understand, one, if you even have value. So we, in the startup world, we call that product market fit. So if you don't have the right product in the right market, growth is going to be impossible anyway. There's There's no... There's no valuable experience to onboard them to. But then assuming that you have product market fit, then it becomes really important that you understand what that key benefit is so that you can set the right expectations for it and then ultimately deliver them to that experience before they give up on your service. And so people have a short attention span. If you can't get them to the right experience on your product before they give up, then then you lose them. And, that, and that's that's where I would say... I'd say 95% of, of businesses are way under investing in new customer onboarding and all of the fastest businesses, fastest growing businesses are investing a ton in new customer onboarding. So they like most really fast consumer apps out of Silicon Valley are spending about 50% of their product development resources are going into that first customer experience. So is that a lot? 50%. So that that basically, I think majority of companies spend maybe 1% of their, of their okay. you know, product development resources on the first customer experience. The fastest growing companies spend half of all, you know, instead of saying, how do I make my product better? It's, they're just thinking, take my existing product. How do I make it more accessible for a new user? So how do I, how do I, you know, keep iterating and changing the product? so that a new person coming in gets the right experience. I see. Interesting. Um, so uh, 
you, you work with uh, Dropbox, and uh, that's a pretty pretty known company. I, I don't remember how many billions uh, it's worth right now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> now that they're public, it changes every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, what were, what were the challenges? You, you 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 briefly talked about it, but what were the main challenges in in Dropbox, and and how did you succeed? So, I think that probably the biggest challenge with Dropbox was just super tight economics on the business. So, if you if you just think about, um, you know, I mean, essentially, your allowable acquisition cost for any business is is essentially what is the value of that user and then what is the cost of, of serving that user. And so for a lot of software, the cost of serving the user is almost nothing, right? So it's you're just you're taking the same piece of code and, and selling it over and over again. But in the case of Dropbox, because they're a freemium business, they had, you know, they're giving away free space to 90-something to users out of 100. And, and, and then, you know, let, let's... I, mean, I don't even know what their conversion rates to to a premium are today, but let's let's just just for the purpose of math say you know it's a ten percent conversion rate to premium, which is probably way too high. But that means that you know for the ten people who pay them, they have to give away a bunch of free space to another ninety people, plus a lot more space to the ten people who pay them. So at the end of the day, there was not a lot of margin left over to pay to acquire a new user when you when you start to think okay it's it's that profit on a user that i can spend to acquire a user and then you had some a lot of competition for yeah any of the keywords so google is a is a good place to start for most businesses but the keywords related to 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 backing up or some of the kind of known searches that people would do in that space were dominated by pretty expensive enterprise products so yeah, that was kind of the, the starting challenge is how, how do you actually spend money to drive growth in a business like Dropbox? And, um, and you know, and, and so that was like one starting point. But at the same time, I also was just I'd, I'd been at Log Me In about six months before I joined Dropbox. And one of the challenges that we had had with Log Me In was you know, we had 100 million devices connected into the Log Me In platform. How do I find a new channel when we when most of that was dollar driven? How do I find a new channel that that will make a meaningful impact on accelerating growth from from there? And so, yeah, I didn't want to get in that same dependency of of paid marketing, external activities to drive growth. So that was one of the things that Drew and I had talked about was for, for driving sustainable growth in this business, we need to figure out how to make the existing customer base be the primary engine for driving growth and bringing in new customers. And if, if that happens, then, then if the existing customer base gets a thousand percent bigger, then your marketing engine gets a thousand percent bigger and you don't need to worry about size becoming a disadvantage to the, in, in hurting your growth rate at like most companies end up having. And so that was probably the biggest challenge was, you know, how do, how do we build a customer get customer, engine on the business and unfortunately there was a lot of natural advantages with that so every time someone shared a file through dropbox they were likely to um, expose someone else to dropbox and and so you could onboard them that way every time someone created a collaboration folder again more people were getting exposed to dropbox and then actually the biggest driver for dropbox was just 
people who were super excited about the product telling their friends about. So just natural word of mouth was really high. So for us, everything was about how do how do we amplify and and just turn up those customer get customer acquisition channels. And again, a lot of it the same the same way that I'm talking about A/B testing. It's in this case you're A/B testing across an entire customer loop and not just A/B testing kind of a landing page or one point in the funnel. But you're also at the bottom of the funnel. You're also A/B testing prompts to get customers to bring in more customers. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Uh, I don't, uh, um, so, so how did you? So, so you okay? You um, uh, word of mouth was uh, a key driver, and uh, it, yep, yeah. And so, and your strategy was to ampli- try to amplify the word of mouth, and you did that with the uh, A/B testing. Uh, cop- well, copy and and yeah, so a couple things. So we did end up building a, uh, a an incentivized referral program, which is always a little bit scary. If people are telling their friends about it for free, if you start to offer money, maybe you're going to break. You know, maybe you're going to break something that works, and some somehow people are going to be less likely to do it. Um, that, that there's always the risk of that, and I was a little bit afraid on on at log me in of having some kind of incentive. But at the same time, being able to being able to, like to to really get virality going and a, and a viral loop. And so if if you think about it, Dropbox had multiple viral loops. So anytime I want to share a file, any so I like for example today I shared I've shared multiple files through through Dropbox. Um, so anytime I'm doing that, I'm exposing other people, reengaging other people, and um, and then it, like that the folder share as well. Plus the word of mouth. So, so each of those are a loop, and that that loop is never completely efficient. So, the more that you can build efficiency into that loop through the A/B testing, the more that you're going to amplify it. And then, and then again, when we added the incentive that if your friend signs up, whether you just gave them natural word of mouth with a referral code. Or you were sharing a file, we would track that as well. Or you were doing a, a shared folder, we would track that. You would you would actually see an increase in the amount of free space that you were getting on Dropbox, and so um, you you suddenly became pretty pretty incentivized to help get the word out about Dropbox, and so it, it did end up amplifying quite a bit what was sort of natural organic growth. It just it just steepened that curve significantly. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, um, uh, you worked a lot of years with growth. So what, what, what is the most important thing you've learned during these years? So I, I think the most important thing that I've learned, you know, it's probably what I've learned in the last few years. So, you know, so, so much of what I did in the past was just, I myself focused on building the growth engine and turning up the growth engine. And what I've learned in recent years is that, um, just knowing what to do is is not enough for for most companies i think the the truly special like effective growth people aren't just going through the motions of a process but but they are they are just tenacious about growth you know they're they're just so focused they're going to figure out how to how to drive growth but they're not just they're not just sort of random crazy trying to cr- drive growth. They're they're using data. They're using experimentation. They're focusing that experimentation where it really matters the most 
really trying to use the the data to figure out what's holding back growth. And then they're they're doing the hard stuff to actually to actually fix that. And that's that's where I've, I've been surprised. I, I would I would think that most people, if you just told them that they need to do that, most people would go out and do it. But I I think especially when you look at bigger companies, uh, when when you're a marketer and you figure out what you need to do to be able to accelerate growth in the business, but that means you have to work more closely with a product team who's maybe not receptive to working with you. Most people are just going to say, okay, screw it. I'm just going to focus on what I can do. And, and they're, they're going to leave a lot of growth on the table. And so I think that's the, that's the piece where you just, I, I think there's a lot of kind of, uh, big mindset changes and culture changes in business where it's got to start with the CEO. The CEO has to basically say, you know, this, this is the key metric we're trying to grow as a business. All teams work together to try to grow that, that metric. And the CEO has to be the one who, who steps in and says, okay, I know product team, you're excited about a long-term vision on the product and what this could be someday. And you're expecting, if we just add this one feature, the business is going to automatically grow and, and all this growth and marketing stuff isn't going to matter that much. But I need you to stop thinking about that and I need you to really work with the marketing team to address this, this key issue that's holding back people uh, from, from adopting the product effectively. And so I think that's the, that's the piece where I'm, I'm certain over the next few years that, that larger companies are are going to see so much so much success from from the companies that are doing this right that they're going to be forced to to make some of those hard cultural changes but that's that's the advantage in a startup is that you don't you don't have to deal with a lot of that but probably what causes startups to fail more than anything is just you know product market fit issues so they they just don't have a a, a product that's really needed but if you if you can get yeah, but somebody who's who understands how growth works, who's willing to do what it takes, and you get them focused on a product that uh, that is really needed in the market, then it's it's a super exciting time because the the tools to do this stuff are are just increasingly um, available and free or or pretty cheap. So yeah, something like Amplitude is has, it gives you really good tracking for for free for up to ten million user events per month. Google Optimize gives you free A/B testing, um, it, so it's not that hard to to tie these things together and get started pretty quickly with them. But um, you know, I, I think the the biggest thing is that someone someone needs to be willing to work hard to to make it happen, and uh, and that's that's probably harder than just just learning what you're supposed to do. It's it's having the the uh, the drive to actually do those things. So you mentioned product market fit, and uh, but how do you actually know if you have product market fit? So the best way to know is when you when you have someone use the product, you know, so so you're always going to have some some friction in the funnel. So you don't want to say, okay, this person this person came in and signed up and and disappeared. We don't have product market fit. No, if you have if you have a really bad onboarding, that's not a product market fit issue, that's a that's an onboarding issue. So a no matter how inefficient your onboarding might be, some people are going to get through it and actually use the product in the right way. To, to measure product market fit, you have to see what those people end up doing. So if they keep using the product, then then you have product market fit. If they use it once, they use it right, and, and then just disappear, then 
at least with that person, you don't have, you know, that, that market of one, you don't have product market fit. So um, ideally, when you start to get a few hundred people on the product who actually come in and use it right, those that stick around on the product, that's where you have to do. So, so like for at, uh, at Dropbox, I, I probably ran a different survey every day for the first two months, always to a different group of people. So I wasn't annoying people with surveys, but just trying to understand who really needs this? Why do they need it? How are they using it? How did they get exposed to it? And so when you, when you actually find people who, when they use it, they love it, that's the sign of product market fit. And you know they love it because they keep using it. So your, your lagging indicator for product market fit is really h- how many people you retain after they've tried the product. You're, I, I did find a shortcut that helped me. That's, that's part of how I was able to find some really good companies like like Dropbox and Eventbrite, um, is just asking, asking a question up front. So, so I would ask the company, give me a list of the people who are, who are using your product now, who, who've actually used it. Let's, let's define what real usage is. And, and then I would just survey those people and ask them how they would feel if they could no longer use the product. So it's, you know, obviously actions speak louder than words, but if they say I would be very disappointed if I could no longer use this product, there's something in that. You can you they're telling you that it's a must-have product. And so that's that's what I was looking for. And what I found over time that the existing user base on a product, when I asked that question, if about 40% or more of the users said they'd be very disappointed with if they could no longer use the product. I almost always could sustainably grow those businesses. And then if it was, if it was significantly less then you know, trying to drive growth in those businesses right away would be a mistake. But you know, in in one of the companies that I've I've listed, I went in and it was actually only 7% of the users said they'd be very disappointed without the product. And when I really dug into those 7%, I found that they were using the product in a different way than the other 93%. They were, they were focused on just one specific use case. And so we, we essentially uh, repositioned the messaging to highlight that use case and did some, did some tweaks to the onboarding and then ran the survey with the next group of people. And it actually was 40%. So we were able to get it from 7% to 40% in about two weeks. And then you know, it, it about within six months, it was up to 60%. And so it's really, you know, a lot of growth is about just figuring out what is that must have experience that the product delivers? And how do I get as many of the right people to that experience as possible? And that's where you get you start to get this flywheel effect when that happens. But there's everything else that I've talked about is about getting more people to that experience. Yeah, and you shouldn't actually scale scale or or focusing on growth before you reach four percent. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean that's the fastest way to bankrupt the company is is invest <laughs> heavily to to grow the business and uh, and and for every person who you get into the right experience on the product, the majority of them say, "I don't like it. I don't care enough about it," and then they disappear. You you just cannot drive sustainable growth in that business, so you'll waste a lot of resources, and that's that's a pretty fast way to go out of business. So you definitely want to validate that you have an experience that people want to keep using over time. And then, and then a lot of everything else is about how do, how do I shine a light on that experience and, and reduce the friction of getting people to that experience. And that's where it becomes a little iterative where maybe I got to send in more people to be able to do that testing. 
you know, or we've got enough people coming in that I can do the testing. And it's, it's all about how can I, how can I quickly get all parts of that customer journey right so that we can sustainably grow a user base that loves our product. And when you do that, you, you, you build a super valuable business. And, uh, but that's, that's the challenge is that a lot of what's needed to be done is outside of, of what a traditional marketing team would do. And so that's where you definitely need this, uh, this kind of full team cooperation on doing it. And in an early stage startup, that's a lot easier than in a big established company. But I, I, the bet I'm making, the long-term vision that I have is that um, it's so much more effective that within, within not too long in the future, whether that's a year or five years, but probably not more than 10 years, most companies will operate this way because you, it's just so powerful. You've just seen you've seen some companies that operate this way become so valuable that um, it's it would be crazy for other companies not to do it that way. Yeah. So, but with, if if everyone does it, uh, then where will you? What will the advantage be of doing it? Well, you, you'll still be in business. If you're the only one <laughs> not doing it, you'll be out of business. <laughs> but well, I think what it will really be then is that it'll come down to you know, those companies with the best product market fit are the ones that become truly valuable. And so that's, that's the, it's, it's fairly difficult to, you know, be even have even better product market fit. But that's why as a, as somebody who's focused on growth and marketing, if I was going to commit, you know, a big chunk of my time to a single company, I would make sure that I, really sought out a company that has strong product market fit and and I, you can the best growth and marketing people in the world are going to fail in companies that don't have product market fit and and even not so good product growth and marketing people are going to actually be fairly successful in companies that do have strong product market fit so i think that's that's one of the uh the, the most important things is before signing on, if you're a marketer uh, or a growth person, before signing on with a company, just make sure that the existing customers who are using the product in the right way actually love it. And most investors are smart enough to, to look for that as well. So, so is that what your suggestion or advice to invest? You're, you're an investor yourself, right? Yeah, I've been investing from yeah for for twenty plus years, and yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a big part of of what drives successful investments for me and, and for a lot of the, the leading VC firms. Yeah. So uh, the product market fit, uh, if, if the company doesn't have product market fit, uh, yeah. you're, they don't always, yeah. And they don't always call it that. They might say we, we invest in retention cohorts or we, I just need to talk to a few customers and I'm looking for passion, but really everybody's talking about the same thing, whether you call it product market fit customers that love the product or strong retention cohorts it's it is all the same thing yeah so uh so growth hacking is not only for startups you you say that also bigger corporations can do can use yeah. these techniques to to grow their business definitely and and so i started it in startups because i thought you know there's no way a startup can be successful without doing it where i do think some bigger corporations can be somewhat successful without doing it because they they just have you know momentum and channels and existing customers and so there's there's enough there's enough traction, but they're never going to grow close to what their potential would be if if they if they change their approach. Um, I I think what I'm starting to see where I'm seeing pockets of this work pretty well is 
not when they're trying to do it, like kind of drive transformation across the full company all at the same time. But they're when they're almost every company, especially in tech, has has an innovation center within that business. And so when they're creating new innovation and ultimately get the validation that that innovation is important, instead of setting up the teams in in a traditional siloed way, if they set it up in a way that that uh, mirrors how the fastest growing startups are approaching growth, which is with this growth hacking approach, then then that's a lot easier in the beginning. There's not a lot of kind of hierarchy and, and silos to break down. And then what I've seen, so Adobe's a classic example here. Adobe's done that with their Adobe Spark division. And then the person who was running growth for this internal startup ultimately got tapped to, to try to run growth for all of Creative Cloud, but they could, they could now point to the prototype of what's already worked really well in their business. I see. So is is there a difference between B2B growth hacking and B2C growth hacking? Yeah, all of what I'm saying works much better in B2C. B2B, it's it's a lot harder, which is, you know, I, I personally have had um, a, a lot of challenges with B2B products myself, especially more expensive products. Um, you just don't have nearly as much data and user flow to iterate on. So there's a lot of yeah, enterprise sales, lead qualification, a lot of a lot of things that have been done for a long time that are still part of the mix, especially B two B as you get more a more expensive product. But um, you know, you still should be striving for that better way to to do everything in the business, and you should still have a success metric that's tied to engagement and value that customers get from your product. So some of the principles apply, but they apply really well in consumer, in, uh, in B2B. Um, it becomes harder to drive that high velocity testing and iteration just because you just don't have the, the, the data to iterate on. Yeah. And uh, you don't have the, you don't have the volume. Uh, but do, do you think that it will be de developed a discipline that, uh, like, uh, which is like growth hacking for B2C? Yeah, I mean, you see it in some B 2 B, like in at HubSpot, for example. I think they're they're really effective in what they're doing. And usually, I mean, HubSpot's a classic example because one, they're they're you know they're targeting uh, more of the you know small and medium sized businesses, so that's going to give them you know a, a, a higher user flow to iterate on. And then uh, the other thing that they've done is they've layered on free versions of almost every one of their products, so. Once you have a free version, then then you have almost kind of consumer dynamics for for the business, and you you see that the same thing with uh, with like Atlassian, um, but, you know some of the some of the per seat models that are that are pretty cheap to get started with, and and it's this landed expand. You're you're still you're essentially a kind of acquiring one customer at a time inside these businesses. So there there's definitely pieces that work in, and, and that, that kind of bottoms up adoption, even Dropbox to some degree has, has, you know, they've, they've got their bigger B2B approach, but they also, by the time that they're trying to sell the business on a solution, a lot of times uh, a, a big chunk of the users inside that business are already using Dropbox. So um, there's, there's definitely companies, Slack, Yammer would be other examples um, that have, That have used that kind of bottoms up approach to B2B growth, but it's uh, it's 
yeah, it, 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 there's still challenges with it, but I think, um, especially if you get into expensive, you know, not there's, there's no kind of cheap way to get started with the product. That's where, that's where you're probably going to find less success with some of the stuff that I've talked about here. Okay. So it should be a cheap, uh, cheap entry to the product. That's where exactly. growth can exactly be kind of land and expand type B2B products. This works really well for. Okay. I see. So, so maybe very expensive B2B product companies should work on establishing a layer that's uh, easier, easier accessible or easier to, to. Exactly. I think that's, that, that should be the goal is how, how do I, how do I work backwards from our core and, and make something that's more accessible where I can, where I can kind of help, help companies get value and, and pull them into the broader solution um, but I think we're still in the early days of, of companies doing that. But I, I think you will see that a lot more. So are all the, you know, the, the big, uh, the big tech companies, the, the GAFA companies, uh, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and, uh, and Apple are, are all of them using growth hacking as a tool? To different degrees. I think what you've, you've got Amazon who's very data driven, um, and the, and, and very like machine driven testing at this point, um, so, so they, they, I think do this, they don't necessarily call it growth hacking. I would say Facebook definitely does Google, Google. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We have our growth hackers conference and Google has, we've had some of the conferences where Google sent more people than any other company to it. So I think that they're trying to get their heads around it and apply it as much as possible. Um, but, uh, and then what was the last one that you, Apple? yeah. And then Apple, I think, Apple is is kind of classic kind of the the principles being embodied here where yeah the, a lot of what I've talked about today is is new customer onboarding and if you think from a from a hardware company new customer onboarding their their path to wow that their path to the aha moment of a product is from in hardware is off the charts better than anyone else so the unboxing of an Apple product has has always been really good it's not necessarily so data driven, but it's it's very empathetic in in what they're doing, and so I think that's the I, I, again I think principles are applied across each of these companies. Amazon may be way more data driven, where where Apple is much more onboarding empathy kind of focused, and and maybe has less data to iterate on. Um, they probably have more now, but it's still with a hardware product, it's pretty hard to iterate. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, you definitely, and, you know, and then at the same time, you, you have certain Apple products that are pretty successful, but then you have Spotify that, um, that is, is I think doing much better than Apple music and that Spotify is, is an awesome growth hacking business. And so, um, I, again, I, I think that's pushing Apple probably in that direction as well. So you, you'll I mean, even like Amazon being a pretty good growth hacking business, even if they don't call it that has uh has has definitely pushed walmart for example in that direction where their jet.com acquisition was a lot about trying to dr- tr- trying to acquire the, the 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 culture and process and approach that uh that um you know jet.com had that was much more growth hacking oriented and from what i understand the entire digital team for for walmart now are, are former jet.com uh executives i see Interesting. Um, so uh, I have a couple of more questions and we have to round off. Um, so uh, what, 
uh, is a single thing you see that most companies are doing wrong? Um, oh, it's, that's a, most companies, it, 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 most companies are at like a lot of different stages, but I, I think, I think f I would say for established companies, the thing that they're doing wrong is trying to gradually adopt this stuff. Um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of it is, is sort of habit for me. It's like saying, I want to gradually start going to the gym. Like if you don't, if you don't push through the inertia and build a habit of, of the right types of activities, you're, you're almost never going to get started. And so I think it's, it's the same thing with, with more established businesses. If they don't, if they don't start a regular cadence of testing and a growth meeting where they hold themselves accountable every week and, really make sure that they've that they've got the tooling in place from a from a tracking and testing infrastructure perspective and they've got their key metric identified and they're overcoming that organizational friction they're they're almost guaranteed to not get started with this so well, I've, I've definitely found that it's it's got to be kind of a big bang push to to get the ball rolling with it and then it then it works well and so um, you know one of the workshops that I'll be doing with you guys is is really, um, is, is based on my learning where I, where I've, I've learned that you can't gradually do these things. You need to jumpstart it. That's why I have a jumpstart program that I generally do for companies themselves to get the right people in the room to start driving the behavior in the right direction. Um, but, uh, you know, increasingly I've been doing it in, in, in groups as well. So it's uh, all or nothing mindset. Yeah. It's just, you got to commit to the path and just, just go for it and, and work through, It's, it's, it's culture change. It's habit change. It's, it's some really hard stuff that if you, if you don't push through that, you're going to go back to old habits and old culture and, and, um, you know, and, and old frustrations around growth that, uh, as you said, if everyone's doing this, it's hard to get ahead, but the more companies that are doing this, the more pain that you'll have not doing it. So you definitely want to be on the front end of, of figuring this stuff out for your business. So it's a matter of survival. For sure. Okay. In the in the short term, I think you can really thrive with this, but in the long run, when you finally make the transition, it'll only be about survival. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, last question: uh, What are the three best tips uh, to companies that want to see growth? Um, first tip would be identify your North Star metric. So, we just look up what is a North Star metric. You'll find a lot of articles about it a lot of them that I've written, but again, it's, it's that quantifying of value delivered to customers. Uh, second tip would be, um, understand all of the levers that move your North star metrics. So build your growth model. What are, what are the interdependencies of how, what are all the different ways you can move that? So not, not on the idea level, but on the retention, acquisition, activation, kind of thinking big picture. And then the third tip is, hold yourself accountable for the number of tests that you do that you're trying to improve the growth rate of your North star metric. Uh, I think I have a fourth tip as well. And Good. Uh, that, that is uh, come and see you in, uh, in Oslo in November. Perfect. <laughs> If you want to see growth, right? Uh, uh, Sean, it's been a real pleasure having you on our podcast and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you in Oslo, uh, November and, um, yeah, great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Lucas. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it.